the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. As we head into hour two of our daily three-hour show, it's a delight to welcome back one of my favorite writers and thinkers, David Harsanya. He's a senior writer for National Review, author of a very important book, First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun. I was quoting yesterday on the show from his recent column in National Review called Distance Learning. David, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate your time and thoughts. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You betcha. You betcha. You know, from the beginning of the um, of the advent or outbreak of the of the coronavirus, February March of a year ago, many of us not enough, but many of us were warning about you know this notion that there's public health and there's public health. Yes, there's the public health that's obvious, the physical and and kinetic public health uh, problems that will come from a virus, but there's another set of issues we need to be concerned about, too, something we used to care more about, it seems to me, mental and social health. And your column gets into this quite a bit with this whole notion in your column called Distance Learning, this whole notion of social distancing, if you will, that affects adults and youth alike. I'll I'll get to the youth in a moment. Let me start with someone you quote at the end and let you go from there. Social distancing Armin Rosen recently noted is an oxymoron, worse than a meaningless pair of words, an insult to language, horrible to even hear in your own mind. Talk to me about, about why that resonates with you so much, David. Well, I should uh, preface all this by saying that I'm not exactly an outgoing person, right? I, um, I am very happy being with my books and writing, etc., and my music and my vinyl and things like that. I'm not a person who goes out a lot and says hi to the neighbors, though I'm not an unfriendly person. I just, it's not my, my first instinct is not to do that. You've always been nice to me for what it's worth. (laughs) No, I'm, 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 I I don't exactly know how to explain it. Uh, I get it. No, I get it. I get it. Some of us are a little more introverted than others, but still we're social animals. Right. I get it. Exactly. So, for me, at the beginning of this thing, it wasn't much different than my usual life. My family life was different because my kids were home and so on. But I uh, work from home and, and all of that, so it wasn't that much different. And but, but even I soon started to realize that I had lost connection with my community. Or I should put it this way. I didn't realize the connections I did have right. before with my community, right. seeing parents at uh, concert, kids' concerts or um, just speaking to my neighbors you know, by you know, running across them in the street and speaking to them, things like that, and I, I you begin to lose touch with the people around you, and it's it's in the, you know, and it's just an unhealthy way for community to function, and um, and I think that there are the, the repercussions of that are something we should think about. Not saying you know, I'm not making some big pronouncement on whether lockdowns work or not. I actually don't think they do, but I'm not a scientist. I don't pretend to be one, uh, but. Uh, I do see that there are repercussions among, as you mentioned, kids, but also adults who no longer uh, 
treated, you know, it's like I feel like every time I'm walking on the street, if I go near someone, they act like I'm trying to kill them, basically, mm-hmm. and maybe yeah. that's what they think. And that's not a healthy way for people to interact who live in the same communities, neighborhoods. And, you didn't realize and, that and, your neighbors and, were divorced and remarried. <laughs> that's correct. Let's, let's, that, that's how you open it. Your neighbors. You didn't realize that you were saying hello to the wrong wife. Am I right? Do I have this right? No, you have it exactly right. I, I, you know, it's a long story, but you know, there's wind chimes going off, and I hate those things, and they're keeping us awake. So I uh, called the the woman who lived next door to me, and I live in a pretty dense uh, sort of area, and you know, the house is ten feet away from me. Uh, I called, and uh, you know, and I learned quickly that she no longer lived here, and that they had re- divorced a year ago, and then remarried. <laughs> and I was embarrassed, but uh, then I thought to myself, everyone's wearing masks. I can't really even recognize anyone. That's right. Um, and we have no inter interactions anymore. So we knew it would um, come. There were scientists. There were scientists who said this would come. The social uh, and mental fallout, uh, the the in, in the wake of some of this stuff that you get from isolation. I have a friend here. He's actually my physician. You may know his work in other areas, Zudi Jasser. And um, he said, you know, the interesting thing about these isolating, uh, mediating uh, factors, social isolation and, and, and that sort of thing, he says, you put someone in isolation, it's an unnatural condition. It's what you do to prisoners. And if you really want to punish them, of course, you put them into solitary confinement. You want to see someone punished or go crazy you separate them from their community. Of course, we've seen this more so on the East Coast in California than in Arizona, to be sure. But you've seen this with everything people should want in a time like this, right, David? Churches, synagogue gatherings. How about 12-step meetings? My God, with the concerns that we were going to have with uh, not just uh, new addiction, but relapse. Relapse, you would want people going to their AA and NA meetings. That stops. And now we are seeing the fallout from this. Um, it's taken a little while to aggregate the data, but we're now seeing increased suicides, increased alcohol consumption, increased drugs and substance abuse. This wasn't this wasn't unpredictable. It was just um, ignorable by too many. That's my view. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think that the people don't weigh were technocrats and you know political leaders who are given emergency powers never. Or don't care, or 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 so. How can you say obsessed with the virus? And it's weird to say that, but they're so obsessed with the virus that they don't think about the trade-off society has to endure when we just lock everything down or tell people to stay away from each other. Um, in in certain instances, it doesn't make no sense to me because the risk is not high for certain people in society, and that's just the fact. Um, and the way we overreact and the way we, we now I see meltdown when we see a video of someone not wearing a mask right. or someone who decides that, you know what, they don't care. Yeah. Um, I guess it's a radical position in today's world to say, I don't think that the government, even in the midst of the pandemic, should have the power to shut down a church. Um, and I don't think it should have the power to tell me to wear a mask outside when I'm walking around. Now, if you own a Target and you want me to wear a mask, it's fine. It's your property. Um, but whenever an emergency comes today, we just we just give up all our rights. It reminds me of Republic era Roman Empire yeah. when you had uh, a dictator for a year during an emergency who could do whatever they wanted. I'm not sure that that's anywhere anywhere in the Constitution that we have that sort of system here. That's not one of the Roman ideas that were uh, taken up by the founders here. And yet, you know, we have now governors for more than a year, no debate. 
no legislation, no, you know, you know, conferring with yeah, no deliberation, leaders. no public input, yeah, just, right? Yeah, exactly. Just acting like like Cuomo did and making huge mistakes that cost mm-hmm. lives, and yep. then having no repercussions. Not for a it. pang of conscience about it either. In some of these cases, Cuomo being a good one. Uh, David, are you uh, by, by the way? Can I keep you for two segments, or do you have to run? Yeah. Okay. Good. Thanks. No, I didn't. Uh, were you? You said it's a radical. Position. I have nowhere to go. Uh, <laughs> okay. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, you said it's a radical position to maybe question some of this, and I guess that's my. I'm asking everyone I know too who who understands politics and sociology like you do. Were you surprised how fast and how many? People went along with it. You know, I, it seems to me this might be too cute, but it seems to me in about 19 over the course of something like 19 years, we went or a lot of us went from let's roll to let's roll up in a ball and hide under our bed. And a lot of people did over something that, as you point out, is ninety nine point nine percent survivable. Yeah. Yeah, I was surprised. I am surprised. Now, initially, I get it because it's scary. We don't know what it's sure. about. Right. We don't know what's happening. And lots right. of people are dying. So it's understandable. But as you know, initially, it was meant, <coughs> excuse me, was meant to keep down hospital uh, visits. Yep. And then it was, sorry. I'll, I'll let you take a breath. <laughs> We're okay. <laughs> this is the I other thing it's done. Up. Anytime anyone has a cough or a sneeze, right? No, it's totally true. The immediate, it's as if people didn't have coughs and sneezes before 2020. It's totally true. Everyone anyway. runs away from you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that. No, so, that's, that's okay. I do it too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, to keep the hospital, you know, you don't want to overwhelm hospitals. And right. then it became, when, you know, even if one person is dying, we can't go outside. Um, so, yes, I was surprised. But more surprised when the government just unilaterally in states decided you can't go to church mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. you can't go to a gun show. Mm-hmm. Or you can't go to school. Mm-hmm. That were a year later, and we still have those kinds of restrictions. Um, it surprises me, but more than that, it kind of scares me because right. you know, emergencies. Every authoritarian ever has used an emergency to gain power, and we create precedents. I don't want to sound like I think like Nazi Germany is around the corner. I don't, but still, you create authoritarian precedents here uh, that will be used in the future, and when no one complains. I shouldn't say no one complains. People complain, but in general, society went along with it because, you know, we care about each other, frankly, and no one wants to spread a disease. No one wants to hurt anyone. I don't think so. Um, but then it becomes something that is now embedded in how we react to emergencies, right. and I think that is No, panics scary. and scapegoats and pitting Americans or humans against one another. These are all the early signs. My friend here says, well, we don't get to the end if we don't start the, at the beginning, right? And we have started at these beginnings. Let me let me pick up with this on with this with you on the other side of this break and we'll get into masks, which I think are a really big totem of all of this. We're talking with David Harsanyi from National Review, his book, First Freedom: A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson's show. David Harsanyi is our guest, senior writer at National Review, author of First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun. His most recent piece, Distance Learning, uh, really not just about schools, but let's get into into the youth just a moment um, and masks in general. David, I have been so opposed to the mask mandates, um, the masking philosophy or ethos, if you will, 
um, for a lot of reasons. I'll start with yours. Um, you write that we are often lectured about how wearing a mask is a preventive measure with no downside. This is a lie. Speak to me. Well, I, I think that that masks are dehumanizing and degrading. Um, I think that they, again, not some social scientist or anything, but I think that a smile from a stranger means something more than we probably understand in usual circumstances. And I think, or, or, or any kind of facial expression, that's how we communicate. I've noticed, um, you know, when I do my runs or I walk my dog and someone passes by me and we have masks on, I have to start to engage in hand movements to relay my thoughts and, or, or, or hello. And maybe that sounds like something that shouldn't be a big deal, but I think smiling at someone is, is means something, right? There's a connection between a stranger or a neighbor or, or, or whatever. And, um, and we don't, we don't have that now. And I mentioned in the piece, and then some people got mad about this, but I think there's a reason that in theocratic countries and in misogynistic in my view, at least, orthodoxies, <laughs> I don't know how to say this, you know, covering up a woman's face is done for a reason. Why did and, you get pushback um, on that? And from who did you get pushback? Yeah, Not names, but what kind of people gave you pushback on that? Uh, people like to call everything Islamophobic. But I'm sorry, you know, I just... People who is, would otherwise be uh, feminists? Yeah, exactly, right. Yeah, okay, just wanting to make sure I understand yeah. the, uh, the, the, and the I don't. I mean, I don't... That... that, that, that smear is thrown around all the time. Now, I'm not going to pretend that I think that everything, I don't think there's anything wrong with criticizing religion if you don't agree with some one of the, you know, uh, you know, precepts of it or whatever. I don't, I don't have a problem saying that. I'm just saying that that's the kind of pushback you get for that. But listen, I think that the way you treat women says a lot about your faith or your philosophy. Of course it does. Of course it does. Christopher Hitchens used to say there is one rule on how to judge a country, and it's how it treats its women. And I thought he was right about that then. I think he's right about it from the grave now. Right. So, again, I think there's a big trade-off when you start telling people to cover their faces. Now you want me to cover my face with two, three masks. I I am actually done with that. As soon as I get my shot, as soon as I'm, you know, God forbid if I got it and recovered, that would be it for me. Because I I just, I think it's an evil, and I wrote it. I think it might be a necessary evil. Let's just say it is. Let's concede for a second. It's still an evil. But I hear Biden, or many liberals mostly, celebrating it like some kind of patriotic, uh, you know, cloth. He says as much. He said it is a patriotic duty. As he mishandles it, by the way, physically, he is an example of how not to handle it. I don't know if you've ever noticed that when he talks about masks and picks them up and touches them and puts them down and picks them up and touches them and coughs into his hand. He's the worst exemplar of how to use a mask, by the way. Just right. it's, it's an ironic side note. Do you remember about five years ago, David, we were seriously talking about anti-masking legislation because of terrorist organizations in this country that were using them to instill fear and panic? Do you remember that? I remember Vaguely. that. Vaguely. Yeah. Yeah, I remember. It's like you that. couldn't go into a store. That's you right. You couldn't go into a, right. yeah, a store with a ski mask. That's or right. right. That's it's right. Yeah. It's intimidating That's and threatening. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Heather McDonald had a pretty good line on it. She said, uh, I, I view masks as walking billboards of human fear and panic. That's what I worry about, too, because you're saying, yeah, once you get your vaccines, you're done with them. Joe Biden, by the way, has had two vaccines and now wears two masks. But that's what they're talking about. They're saying masks even after the vaccine because of God knows, David, 95 percent effective is not 100 percent effective. 
and there are serious serious people talking about three masks. Right, but like 50,000 people die of the flu or whatever it is. I'm not trying to get the number wrong, but um, why not save those lives as well? I think we've had a 98% reduction in flu cases this year. So I can see people trying to, you know, be, to, to have us live in total safety. And if one person dies, why shouldn't everyone wear a mask? I mean, this is the kind of thing that you hear sometimes. And I hate for, I'd hate for that to be normalized. And I'm a little nervous that it will be. I'm a little nervous that it will be, too. The studies are just coming out. I was saying I wanted to talk about the children in masks for a moment. The studies are just becoming just becoming a little bit public and done right now. There's this new study. I don't know if you've seen it. 25,000 school-aged children shows that masks are harming school children physically, psychologically, and behaviorally, revealing 24 distinct health issues associated with wearing them. Never mind the shaming that goes on between families I mean, there's a lot of that, too, amongst kids turning against each other from different families. And what is the fatality rate of, of children? It must be point zero zero something, right? Yeah, it's about five thousandth of a percent, somewhere last, somewhere in that neighborhood. Yeah, we are, we are doing to children things to protect them from a disease that does not affect them. We are altering, I mean, I we know are people altering their entire social and psychological order to protect them yeah. from a disease that does not affect them. Yeah, I, I can't argue with that. And 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 um, I suspect I know not for older people, but the flu is probably more dangerous for a teenager is. or younger than of it, course is it is in of, coronavirus. Of course it is. Far we more. Never, we never shut down schools for the for flu. Never shut down a school for the flu. Not one. My dad, I remember. My dad told me stories of going to school when kids had polio. You know, he, he's not around anymore, but we never shut down schools this way. We never did it. And and there's something Harrison Bergeron about this. There's something there's something about instantiating the fact that we're a sick society, which I do think the left has wanted us to believe for a long time, whether it has to do with global warming or the population bomb or the nuclear winter. There is something about the mask that makes everyone think we are a sick society when I just happen to think we're not. Not with a 99.9% survival rate, we're not. No, I think you hit on something very important. I've been writing about this for a while. We have people who think we're living in the worst, most dangerous right. time Always. in history when the, rever- right. it's, the reverse is true. Yep. Yep. This is the healthiest, richest, wealthiest. Right. You live longer, you live better. Um, so for them, it's that and also the ability to control everyone. And I think that that kind of power is not going to be just given up very easily. That's right. And, We're and always that's on we the have. eve of destruction to the left. Um, you know, the president isn't just conservative. He's a fascist, for example, or worse than Hitler. Yeah, you're, Alex Berenson said that about the masks. He said, I worry that too many government officials are looking at it to see it as a test case of what else they can get us to do. That's an interesting observation as well. Yeah, And even if they're not consciously saying that exactly to themselves, I think that that's what they're feeling, right? It's a data point. Yeah, it's a data point. Yeah, it will be. Yeah. Well, it's good to have like-minded people around, David, and hopefully we're not the radicals. Hopefully we're not. Hopefully we're not. But um, strange days indeed, as John Lennon would say. David, thank you for spending some time with us. Thanks for your enduring uh, great work. Really appreciate it. I appreciate the kind words. Thank you. You betcha. David Harsani, senior writer, National Review, author of First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun. Open Lines Friday, your show here on out. Anything you want to talk about, that's why we're here. 602 
508-0960. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. For health, energy, boosted immunity, you want balance of nature. 31 different fruits and veggies in a daily dose. 10 servings of those 31 different fruits and veggies. And I'm talking great stuff. Apples, cherry, mango, oranges, blueberries, papaya, pineapple, spinach, cayenne pepper, garlic, kale, celery, wheatgrass, onion, carrots. All natural, fine ripened fruits and veggies picked at their peak of ripeness. Third party tested for any and all impurities. They have this great, unique cold press process where we do, they reduce the fruits and veggies into vegetarian capsules. If you don't like swallowing them, easy to unscrew, very easy. And you can just sprinkle it in a drink or on some other food, be it, you know, cottage cheese or something else. I, I swallow them. I have no problem with it. Three fruits and three veggies, and you are doing an amazing thing for your health. I think it's the most effective whole food supplement on the market, and they have a great deal. It's just great. Free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order of their fruits and veggies. It guarantees you wholesale pricing for life. Give them a call at 800-246-8751 or visit them at balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE, balanceofnature.com, discount code BALANCE. I don't know how many of you heard this or saw this. I thought it was super important. The reason I thought it was super important was twofold. There's an old saying, it's been attributed to different people, Hegel, Voltaire, I don't remember it, but it has a truth in it. No man is a hero to his valet. No man is a hero to his valet. That is to say that sometimes famous and well-known great people, eh, not so great to those who work for them. And a mark of a special person who's in the public sphere, who other people think of as great, is how well they do treat people who work with and for them. And I just thought this audio for that reason and one more I'm going to tell you about in a moment was super important. This was Joe, excuse me, this is uh, James Golden speaking last night. He was uh, known as Bo uh, Snurdly professionally. He was Rush Limbaugh's producer with Sean Hannity. Would you run this for me, please? You've been so kind, <clears throat> not just to me, but to all of us during this period of profound grief. And, um, you know, Sean, we can't wrap our arms around this. We can't wrap our brains and our hearts around it, that our beloved Rush has returned his uh, talent to God. And we are so thankful for him. You know, Rush is, to me, a second-generation founding father. This went beyond radio. This went beyond politics. What Rush did for America, one man changed so many trajectories in this, in this country. When Rush began his career, there were 1,200 radio stations roughly doing the talk radio format. Today, there are over 12,000. The number of print conservative publications, very few today, they are, it's a flourishing market. You, there was no Fox TV. There, were no, there was nowhere on TV that you could get conservative ideology, that you could get 
the values that represent what most Americans believe until Rush. He changed the media. He changed the landscape. Rush Limbaugh's radio show grew for over 30 years. This is unheard of. And our audience from small children all the way up through the senior of senior citizens. And beyond all of those accomplishments, Rush Limbaugh was one of the finest human beings that you would ever want to meet. A generous, wonderful, beautiful spirit, humble, a gentleman, always, never failed to thank people for the smallest service that they could do to him, never looked down on people. It burns me to my soul when people sully his reputation with falsehoods, calling him a racist. This man was just an incredible phenomenon. And we love you, Rush. God bless you. And thank you, Sean, for having me uh, with you to talk about Rush. For those uh, that don't know, if you want to watch the video, it's worth watching. For all those people who call Russia white supremacist or racist, James Golden boasts nerdly happens to be a black man wearing an African nationalist hat. Maybe, maybe they want to check with him as they produce no evidence to their epithets. 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. A friend of mine was just uh, texting me. The real fascists and racists among us are on the left. And that's why I try and bring you, when I play audio, audio. I don't play a lot. But when I do, I just think it's, it's, it's obviously something said better than I can say myself and worth promoting. And I, and I do abide by the lesson from Flannery O'Connor that you have to push back as hard against the culture as pushes against you. That's one of the great things PragerU does. I was listening to Gallagher this morning. He had a listener. Forget what city. Call in. You know, the loss of Rush. It's going to take a while to figure out how big a loss of it, a loss it is. Monumental to start, to put it no higher. And one of the listeners said, you know, Mike, you're, you're great, but you're now going to have to do better. I thought that was an interesting comment. His point being, it wasn't critical, his point being everyone now has to up their game because nature abhors a vacuum, and this is a vacuum that simply cannot be filled. Everyone's going to have to up their game. Anyway, uh, PragerU has been a good part of that. And if it weren't invented, someone would have to try and convince Dennis to invent it. And I love this latest one. I just wanted to share it with you. Dan Collins, he, he's the father of 13 children. Eight are white and five are black, adopted. And he has a few questions for Black Lives Matter. Would you, would you play this for us, uh, Maestro? I consider myself to be a typical Main Street American. One thing that is different about me is that I have a big family, not so common in America these days. I'm the proud father of 13 children. Eight are white and five adopted are black. My family is my greatest joy and my life is dedicated to their well-being and happiness. I'm struggling right now because I genuinely don't know how best to support my black children 
Through this tumultuous and painful period in our history, some say I should get involved with the Black Lives Matter movement, while others say I should avoid it at all costs. To help me figure this out, I have some questions for the Black Lives Matter Global Network. Before asking, let me preface my questions with some background. In the summer of 2020, a peaceful BLM demonstration in my hometown of La Mesa, California, turned violent as protesters began rioting, looting, and setting fires. The next day, I took my 14-year-old black son downtown to help with the cleanup. As we walked past the charred remains of Chase Bank, I noticed the letters BLM graffitied onto a wall amid the rubble. It was unsettling, as if Black Lives Matter was claiming credit for the bank's destruction. I didn't want to believe that. Just as any parent who has adopted and biological children, I love them all the same. Obviously, I never want to see any of them wrongly accused, mistreated, or targeted because of their skin color. I would happily support any peaceful movement that helps to secure racial justice and equality. I also recognize the need for law and order. No community can survive, let alone thrive, without that. This is the source of my conflict and confusion. Is it possible for my family to support the Black Lives Matter movement while also supporting the police? I went to your website looking for answers, but I came away with more questions. You state that your mission is to eradicate white supremacy and build local power to intervene in violence inflicted on black communities by the state and vigilantes. But you don't explain how you're going to do that. What is your definition of white supremacy, of local power? By state, I assume you mean police. Who are the vigilantes you're referring to? And how do you propose to intervene in violence inflicted on black communities? Honestly, I can't tell whether you intend to pursue your mission through peaceful or violent methods. Until recently, your website also declared that you will disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. Does my family fit that description? Why would you want to disrupt my family structure? That language has been quietly removed. Does that mean that you no longer hold that view? Or was it just the expedient thing to do? I reached out to my local chapter of Black Lives Matter, hoping to speak with someone who could help me sort all this out. I then contacted your regional and national headquarters. I got no response. So I began doing my own research. That led me to an interview on the internet with one of your founders, Patrice Cullors. We are trained Marxists, she said. We are super versed on ideological theories. Which theories are those? Is Black Lives Matter a Marxist-inspired organization? Marx advocated for the forcible overthrow of our civilization. Is that what BLM wants also? I have a few more questions. As an organization, do you believe in and support the Constitution? Do you honor the flag or do you view it as a symbol of oppression? Do you believe that people should be primarily judged by the content of their character or the color of their skin? Do you support or condemn destruction of personal and private property of others? Do you believe in the defacing and destruction of statues, monuments, and other public property? Do you believe that police departments need to be reformed or to be defunded or to be eliminated altogether? I am one of countless Americans who want answers, but I can't seem to get any. From all reports, you've raised millions of dollars in support of your organization. What are you doing with that money? Are you using that money in some way to help black communities? No one seems to know. 
I humbly propose that you use some of that money to help black people who have been harmed by the destruction that has accompanied BLM protests. I'm thinking of the many black business owners whose shops were destroyed by riots in your name. I'm thinking of the family of David Dorn, the black retired police captain who was shot and killed while trying to protect a friend's pawn shop from looters. With all my heart, I believe that Black Lives Matter. I would like to support Black Lives Matter, the organization, in an effort to support my black children. But it's hard to do so if I don't know your beliefs and goals. Speaking as a father and as a typical American, I look forward to your answers. I'm Dan Collins for Prager University. You know what's interesting about those questions he asks? What do you believe about statues? What do you believe about vigilanteism? What do you believe about violence? What do you believe about Marx? You would think before government elected leaders, politicians, would embrace the name BLM or rename streets or blocks, city blocks, with those initials, you would think they would have asked those questions, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? But no, we live, we live in this time that was so typical of the Eastern European moment in the 70s, written about by, written about by people like, uh, well, people like, like, like Valesa, who said, you know, we were just forced to put these signs in the window Sons like workers of the world unite, not knowing what it meant, just knowing that if we didn't, we would be shut down. If we didn't register with the party in the Soviet Union, we couldn't get a work visa. David Harsanyi says he doesn't want to compare this to fascist movements of the 20s and 30s and 40s. But there is, there is that line. There is that line from... Martin Niemöller, isn't there? There is. You know it, don't you? First they came for the socialists, and I didn't speak out because I was not a socialist. And then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak out because I was a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Your show, open line Friday, 602-508-0960. Keith, I see you there. Hold on. I'm going to get you at the top of the next hour, if you don't mind. My producer, Bill, refuses to buy Nike products. I support that. Sometimes he'll come in with a hole in his shorts or shirt where he cut out their insignia. I'm now going to do the same with Coca-Cola. I will not after today by Coca-Cola products. If you go to uh, Twitter, you will see they are now training their employees on how to be, quote-unquote, less white. Employees took pictures of their online training, sensitivity training. The last frame is try to be less white. Try to be less white, to be less oppressive, to be less arrogant, to be less certain, to be less defensive, to be less ignorant, to be more humble. Listen, believe, break with apathy, break with white solidarity. You involved in any white solidarity, Bill? 
that you know of? I'm not either. Candace Owens writes, if a corporate company sent around a training kit instructing black people how to be less, less black, if a corporate company sent around a training kit instructing black people how to be less black, the world would implode and lawsuits would follow. I genuinely hope these employees sue Coca-Cola for blatant racism and discrimination. One of the frames says, in the U.S. and other Western nations, white people are socialized to feel that they are inherently superior because they are white. Did you ever, were you ever socialized to think that? I was actually, I have to be very honest with you, as a white man. I was socialized to feel the exact opposite from an early age. I was socialized to feel that race doesn't make anyone inferior or superior. I was really drilled that. It was drilled into me. Not that it was needed, I don't suppose, except for the fact that sometimes you do find a bigot here and there. And I was taught equally that it was the worst regimes in the world that believed otherwise. That people were socialized to believe that races could be inherently superior and inferior. Well, as Robert Jackson said, we can avoid these ends by avoiding these beginnings, but we are going towards these ends because we are not avoiding these beginnings, folks. Never again. That's why I say it's one of the greatest lies of the 20th and 21st century. It means nothing.